0: Uh, clarifications <coughs> I didn't mention earlier first there's no evening service tonight oh, it's a change in the schedule that you have on your sermon schedule and then second um, the abdominal pain that Jennifer has is not pregnancy okay I saw how some of you were looking at us but okay, we they did check that by the way but it is not pregnancy all right Numbers chapter 25 and 26. This story here in chapter 25 is very similar to the flagrant sin of Israel in the wilderness at the beginning of their journey. In Exodus 25, and following the people worship a golden calf, that the while God was literally up on the mountain with Moses blessing Israel with the giving of the law, what was Israel doing? They're at Mount Sinai. They're down there making and worshiping an idol. And that's very similar to what we will see in our story today. Remember, the Amorites defeated the Moabites. And so the Moabites are like the little brother to the Ammonites, to the Amorites. And The Amorites took control of one of the Moabites' former cities, Heshbon, a city near the Jordan River. But Israel, by the power of God, defeated the Amorites, and so now they're bordering Moab, the little brother, and Moab's afraid. Because if Israel can beat up their bigger brother, then certainly they can beat up them. And so uh, because they knew that they would lose the king of Moab, hired, his name was Balak, hired the world-renowned communicator with the gods. And so they had this guy brought in from several hundred miles away, 25 days' journey, trying to get him to curse Israel. And Balaam wanted to. He wanted the money, he wanted the fame, but he couldn't curse Israel. Every time he tried to, God communicated a blessing. And so having failed, Balaam came up with another plan. And that, that was to get the women of Moab to entice Israel into immorality, which indirectly brought a temporal curse on Israel, which is what Balak, the king of Moab, wanted. But it didn't bring about the ultimate curse that Balak wanted. And so at this point in the story that we're going to look at today, Israel is encamped on the other side of the Jordan River. They're They're just a few months away from crossing into the Promised Land. They're on the border of Moab, and they've just seen God deliver them from one of the most pesky enemies in the area, the Amorites. So that's where we are when we start chapter 25. Let me read the chapter for us and we'll uh, study both chapters, but we'll just read the first one together. <coughs> together. This is the word of God. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to the, to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then, behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman, in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. He went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him, a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Now the name of the slain man of Israel who was slain with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of a father's household among the Simeonites. The name of the Midianite woman who was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, who was the head of the people of a father's household in Midian. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Be hostile to the Midianites and strike them, for they have been hostile to you with their tricks which, with which they deceived you in the affair of Peor and the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian their sister who was slain on the day of the plague because of Peor. <clears throat> Here in these two chapters, we see that God is raising up a generation of people who will trust Him. God is raising up a generation of people who will trust Him. And so we have, really, in chapter 25, the end of the old generation, and in chapter 26, the, the census or the hope that comes with the new generation. So, all this time we've been following them from the middle of Exodus all the way to the end of Numbers, this older generation has been the center of focus. They have been the center of attention. They are the ones who have seen God's great power in delivering Israel from Egypt. They are the ones who have seen God's great provision throughout the time in the wilderness. They have seen God's great protection. And yet, they lacked faith. And God said... If you want to live in disbelief, if you want to live in your sin, then I will go ahead and let you do that. I'm waiting around for another group of people who will trust me, and that's who I will lead into the promised land. It doesn't have to happen this generation, it doesn't happen, have to happen today. I will be patient and I'll wait around for someone who will trust me. And that's what the second generation is about. So, by the end of this of chapter 25, the generation that we have, that, that has been our focus in Exodus through Numbers are all going to be dead except for three. The two who believed that God would deliver them from the Canaanites, Joshua and Caleb, and then Moses is still alive. He's not going to make it into the Promised Land, but he still has a long sermon to, to preach before he dies. The treachery of their sin will be evident in chapter 25. That, that is the this treachery of the sin of the older generation. And God's going to respond by allowing them to taste the fruit of their sin. So, first, we see the end of the old generation, chapter 25. In the first five verses, we have really two stories that make up chapter 25. We have this idolatry and and immorality between Israel and Moab. That's the first story. And the second story is this brazen, flagrant, um immorality that happens inside the camp of Israel. so first this first story, God responds to Israel's idolatry with judgment in verses one through five. There are two sins that are mentioned here in verses one through three, the sin of immorality and the sin of idolatry. Notice verse one, the text says, when Israel remained at Shatim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Then in verse two, it says that they invited the people to sacrifice to the sacrifice of their gods. That is, the Moabites invited the people of Israel to sacrifice with them. And the people of Israel ate and bowed down to their gods. And so, verse 3, Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. So, verse 1, sin of immorality, which was often coupled with the sin of idolatry in the Old Testament. And that's exactly what's happening here. Apparently, there were leaders in the people of Israel who were the culprits or the initiators of this sin. And so that's they're the ones who compelled the rest of the older generation of Israel to engage in this sin. The reason I think that leaders were involved was because of verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So apparently these leaders had had some conversations with Moab uh, probably through the influence of Balaam this wicked prophet who's trying to get Israel to be cursed so that Moab will be blessed and so that Moab will bless uh, Balaam but whatever the case the the leaders of Israel fall into the trap and they lead the rest of the older generation into this sin this sin is a serious sin because God's going to judge it very Swiftly and very severely. But what we need to consider is why is this sin so terrible? I mean, what is so terrible about this sin of immorality? And I would suggest that this sin is a high-handed sin against God. That these leaders and these people who engaged in this sin should have considered all the good that God had done to them from the time of Egypt. They had They were alive. They saw it with their own eyes. They experienced it. They actually, with their own feet, crossed the Red Sea on dry land. They had tasted for 40 years the manna that God had provided for them. So they never had to do any extraneous work for their food. They never had to to scrounge for food or wonder where their next meal was going to come from. God provided for them. Deuteronomy says that that God uh, caused their clothes not to wear out. and their feet not to swell, despite all the walking that was involved. And and God is lovingly caring for them for all this time and delivering them from their enemies. And how do they respond? But with this high-handed sin against God, defiant opposition. They commit immorality. And notice verse 2, they sacrifice with Moab's gods. One of the Moabites' gods Is named Shemash, as we know from chapter twenty-one, verse twenty-nine. And so they're not giving exclusive worship to God. There is only one God, and He alone must be worshipped. And Israel is saying, You know what? Maybe there's something to some of these local gods. Maybe there's something to this. And their disloyalty is even more striking to see the severity of their sin. Look at verse three. So Israel joined or bound themselves to Baal. Baal is the god of the Canaanites. So this is this is pluralism. This is paganism at its worst. Right? That is that they're 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 worshiping multiple gods. They're in 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 um, in in name only, or or at least in in uh, confession only. They're worshiping supposedly the god of Israel, not the way he wants to be worshipped. But they're also then worshiping this Shemash, the god of the Moabs, and then Baal, the god of the Canaanites. And so that's why I call this a high-handed sin. They knew of God's goodness. They knew of God's character. They had seen His great works, and yet they turned their face away from Him. This is not a simple affirmation. Oh, well, you know what? We can go along with this just so that we can enjoy the immorality. No, this is we are committing flagrant idolatry. We are turning our backs on the true God of Israel. And that's why God responds as he does. Notice verses 4 and 5. God responds by judging the leaders of Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders and execute them in broad daylight. And so Moses did in verse 5. They're judged in broad daylight. Uh, probably before all the people of Israel. That is, that the whole congregation was gathered together. These leaders were paraded out and told about the sins they had committed. And it was done in broad daylight so that everyone everyone would know how serious God is about sin. Everyone would know how serious God is about holiness. Notice what it's called there in verse 4, at the end of the verse, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And this seems harsh on the part of God that He would kill the leaders in broad daylight. But notice that this is, that is the leaders who are the ones who led the people into sin. It is the leaders who are judged. These are supposed to be God's voices to the people. God's representatives. And God had every right to destroy them. God had every right to show them the severity of their sin. And the judges apparently were not culprits because in verse 5, they actually carry out the sentence. So they apparently were not a part of the immorality and the idolatry. So first, God responds to the idolatry with judgment. This, Balaam, is not mentioned in this passage. But again, as I mentioned last week, we know from other texts like chapter 31 that Balaam was the one who led them into the sin. He's the one who uh, compelled Israel to commit immorality as they're bordering Moab. And as a result, um, it's clear that Balaam was not a believer. Balaam was a false prophet. Balaam was a, a hater of God. And he would be judged as such. The second story is found in verses 6 through 15 of chapter 25. So the older generation dies first by these leaders committing or leading the people into sin, committing this immorality. And so they're judged that way. That's how they die. And then the rest of the older generation is left. And they're all going to die, save Moses and Joshua and Caleb. They're all going to die through this plague. And this plague comes about because of this brazen treachery that comes from this Israel, this Jewish man here. Notice in verse 6, the brazen treachery of of Zimri and this Midianite woman, Cosby. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent. So Israel is mourning over the loss of their leaders who have just been judged because of the sin with Moab. And here comes Zimri walking into the camp with this foreign woman which which everyone knew was against God, not because she was of another ethnic group but because she worshipped false gods that's why God kept them from, from the foreign women because they would cause like they did with Solomon they would cause these men to worship other gods and God said you can't do that I alone am, am to be worshipped and, so, um, and so Zimri just blatantly walks into the camp in front of his family, in front of all the congregation of Israel, in front of Moses while they're all weeping over the loss of their leaders. And if we think of the people of God, if we think about the whole nation of Israel as kind of a dwelling place where God resides, right? I will dwell among you. right? He, he lives there in their camp. He's in the center of where they are. He leads them. He's not far off and distant and removed. So if we think of the people of Israel like a kind of dwelling place of God then this kind of flagrant sin of bringing immorality into the camp is like bringing sin into the presence of God. So this man, Zimri, was flaunting his defiance of the ban against immorality. So God responds with righteous anger in verses 8 and 9. At the end of verse 8, so, the plagues on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. So, this plague actually comes as a result of uh, the sin of Israel. Could be connected to the Moabite, the, sin, the immorality of the Moabites, and to this sin with Zimri. Not clear exactly where the, the judgment comes from, but, but whatever the case, the rest of the older generation is going to die in this plague. God is so serious about holiness that he's willing to bring about death. Is bring, willing to bring about death to some as a result of their sin, in order to show others how jealous God is for holiness from His people. That's not always why we die. We don't always die as a direct result of our sin. We've, we've talked about this before. There's certainly innocent suffering. There's innocent death, uh, but all of us have sin in some way. So we do have. Um, God, God has. We have brought upon ourselves the curse of death. But, but it's not necessarily always a direct, direct result of our individual sin. That is, that, that I have sinned against God and God's judging me. Death is part of being a human being, right? Jesus died and He, had, he was certainly innocent in His death. But this seems to be a direct result of their sin. That God's coming in righteous anger, jealous for their holiness. And because they are not holy, He responds by killing them. In verses 7 and 8 we see the wise mediation of God's servant. Phinehas was the grandson of the original high priest Aaron and the son of the current high priest Eleazar. Remember Aaron passed the baton to Eleazar in um, a few chapters back. And notice what Phinehas does in verse 8. He went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through. So this could be perhaps while they were in the act of Immorality, pierced them with the spear. And when God saw that, God stopped the plague. Now, why respond with such brash decisiveness? Why kill a couple for their immorality? Well, remember the purpose of the priests and the Levites. This is Phinehas. He's the grandson of the priest. He has responsibility. To guard the purity of God and to guard the purity of God's people. If God was going to dwell among them, then God had to come into a holy place. I must, didn't mean completely without sin, but it meant that according to God's terms and how sin was covered, it had to be done in that way, right? If God was going to dwell among them, the priests were kinds of, kind of the guards who stood around the tabernacle of where God dwelled. And said, no one can come in unless they have atonement or they are clean. I should say, and they are clean. They have to both have atonement for their sins and they are clean. They have to be forgiven and they have to be clean, ceremonially. And so what Phinehas is doing is what Moses and the other other Levites are not doing. the, The text doesn't indict Moses or anybody else, but... But apparently this man walks right in front of the sight of Moses. Moses sees what's going on. He doesn't respond immediately like Phinehas does because he is concerned about what God is concerned about. See, Aaron's family had the responsibility of guarding the purity of God's dwelling place even by judgment of death so that it's better for Israel and their priests, Levites, to judge themselves rather than to be judged by God. Similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, right? Um, it, it's better for us to judge uh, those who are inside of the church, let God handle those that are outside. We have a responsibility, now it's not going to be, in, by the way, not, not in the form of death or a capital punishment or anything, but, but the point is that we have a responsibility to self-judge. We are better off to recognize our sin and put a sanction on ourselves than to let it go and and have God chase us down. And so here, the reason that Phinehas was so decisive and so brash in his judgment of these two is that in a time when the people of Israel should have been mourning the sins of the leaders and the offenders, here comes Zimri, one of their own, an Israelite who brazenly prays in his Midianite mistress into the very camp where God has planted the flag of His presence. He said, I don't care about God. I don't care about His presence. I don't care about His holiness. What are you going to do to me? And God was pleased with Phinehas' response. Notice in the second part of verse 8. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. It seems to be a direct result of Phinehas' Phinehas's swift action that God is responding. And we also know from um, verses 11 and 13 that that is the case as well. Verse 11, Phinehas, the son of... Israel, this is God speaking here. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the high priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel... How, how did he do that? Well, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. And then verse 13, he, he promises him great blessing, him and his family. And then the end of the verse says, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sins of Israel. Excuse me, for the sons of Israel. So why did God accept Phinehas' swift act of justice? Because Phinehas was jealous with God's jealousy. Phinehas was concerned about what God was concerned about. Phinehas desired what God desired. Just realize that the point up there is... I put Eliezer there. That should be Phinehas on on the uh, overhead there. But Phinehas stops the judgment of God because he desired God's honor. And God's, God is... Uh, happy to bless those who are concerned about what he is concerned about. Everybody else kind of wandering off in their own way or not sure what to do. Uh, Don't want to step on any toes. Um, We're we're kind of enjoying our sin. And here's Phinehas saying, you know what? I know what God loves. I know what honors God and this does not. So in that time, that was an appropriate response to the death of this couple. So that's the end of the old... Generation save Moses and Joshua and Caleb. They all die out from this plague of 24,000. And that leads us to chapter 26, which we're not going to read, but it's a census of the children of Israel at this point in their wandering or their, their wilderness position. They're not wandering anymore. They're on the brink of entering into the promised land. So all you have left here is the new generation, the ones who the older generation thought would all be killed or die out in the wilderness. They, would, they thought that they would be destroyed by the enemies. And so please take us back to Egypt. We're going to bring a new leader here so that, that we can go back to Egypt. Maybe there we'll have safety. At least we could die in old age and enjoy some food and, and all that sort of thing. And, and God says, actually, those are the people. They're not going to die in the wilderness. That younger generation, they're actually going to be the ones who receive the promise. That's exactly what happens. God does not abandon Israel despite their sin, but rather he remembers his promise to them. This older generation cannot accept or receive the promised land because of their sin, but this newer generation can. And so in verse 2, God calls for a census, and the purpose of the census was not to see how many men were going to be equipped to to go into battle, although that's one of the requirements. It needs to be someone who's 20 and older and military-ready. But that's not the purpose of the census. The purpose is to show how many God would bless in the land of promise. Because it was God who was actually going to dispossess Israel's enemy. And it was not going to be because of military skill or advanced weaponry. It's because God is a powerful God and He can do miracles. Like the, first, the very first battle that they faced, the fight, which is the battle of Jericho. No weapons involved other than a couple of trumpets. No tactical precision or um, or military uh, acumen needed besides being able to march and yell. All they had to do was trust God. That's all God was looking for. He's not looking for uh, a lot of skill. He's not looking for a great amount of ability. He's just looking for people who will trust Him. And that's what this younger generation would do. And so these... Twelve tribes are listed here. Verses 5 through 11, we have Reuben, then Simeon, Gad, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Ephraim, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. And the total in verse 51 is 601,730 men who would have been able to go into the military. And then he talks about the Levites. And at the end of the chapter, And the fact that they're not part of this census because they don't have any inheritance. So really the point of this is not to see who's military ready, but rather who's going to receive the land. Now, the Levites are not going to receive the land, which is why they're not in the census, but they're still mentioned at the end of the chapter to say, listen, they don't need any land because the Lord is their inheritance. So nobody from the previous generation was numbered in this new list. So if you compare this to the list in chapter 1, it's completely different because that was the, the, the... consensus of the old generation, they're all dead now besides the three. Let's think about three applications this morning that I think uh, we can consider in relationship to the to this text. Number one, watch out for the varied or multifaceted attack of Satan. Watch out for the varied or multifaceted attack of Satan. This doesn't come directly from today's text, but I think if we look at the larger portion of, of our study, just in the last week, for example, that we will recognize that just as Satan is with us, so he was with Israel. That is, that he walks around like a, like a, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. And he has several different ways he attacks. We could probably narrow them down to two. First, the overt attack of Satan The overt attack when he just comes with all the banners saying who he is. Just calling people out who will follow him. This is more like what was happening in chapters 22-24, through right? Where it's Satan, it's very clear from the pages that Satan is behind this in some way. That he's trying to get Israel cursed. And it's more of an overt attack, attack. But then there's this covert attack. Or he still wants Israel to be cursed. He still wants the people of Israel to turn their face away from God. But instead of, hey, blatant idolatry, what about a little immorality? The immorality leads to idolatry, of course, but, but it's more of a covert attack. Satan, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.14, disguises himself as an angel of light. You know, Satan somehow tempted us in a way to deny the faith and turn towards another um, denomination or religion, we would probably turn that down flat without even thinking. But that's generally not how he works, especially with people who've been in church for a long time. He genuinely attacks us in the second way, which is this more covert attack. He, He hides himself. He disguises himself like an angel of light. What we need to recognize is that we are in a battle against our flesh and against this world and against the devil. If we think that we can coast through life like we're on a lazy river or just get saved and then do nothing after that, then we are in serious danger. We need to put on the whole armor of God, including the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And all these pieces of armor need to be put on. Through prayer. That's how Paul finishes there in Ephesians 6, verse 17 and following. Praying with all prayers and supplication. That is that that all these things that that we are required to do to protect ourselves from Satan are done with our dependence on God, right? Knowing that we can't do this on our own. This is not some kind of just, uh, you know, if I just try a little harder. This is... I'm relying on You, God. I cannot protect myself from Satan and his fiery darts that want to destroy me. So we rely on Him to protect us both from the overt and the covert attack of Satan. Watch out for the varied attack of Satan. Sometimes it comes for us and the way it would come to Israel. Just one look, right? It's not that big of a deal. It's not going to, it's not going to harm your family. It's not going to tear up your church, and it starts that way, and then it comes becomes a great desire. And it turns into a passion. And that passion takes the place of God. Before long, you're like Israel has turned their back on God and has committed a flagrant sin against God that 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 a person doesn't want to turn from. Right? They they've known all the goodness of God, they've seen his character, they've seen how he's provided and shown blessing. But they don't care about that because the passion of immorality which leads to idolatry is too great. So we need to watch out for that. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared. Stand up against the attacks. We need to call sin what it is no matter how little it is in our minds. We need to call sin what it is before God. It's rebellion. Secondly, recognize that holiness is not an option. It's more to the heart of what this text is about. Holiness is not an option. God is serious about holiness, isn't he? As a child the chosen people of God, Israel was called to the standard of perfect holiness, and anything less than perfect righteousness demanded what? It demanded a proper sacrifice in order to atone for sins. So that even after a Jew received genuine salvation, even when he became a genuine believer, he could not accept God's promises without embracing God's demands. Right? He couldn't just say, well, I'll take the promises, but I don't like all these laws, so I'm just going to set those aside. And, and that demand for our holiness as Christians is really very similar, isn't it? It's not much different. That we can't just accept the promises of God's future salvation. Say, I've got my home in eternity. That's all I wanted. Thank you. Without accepting God's demand for holiness. See, God's demand for holiness has not changed. Now, the the, the way that it looks might be a little different, right? The the kinds of foods that they ate. right? The kinds of things that they could wear. The kinds of... Uh, but but many of the the laws that they had are still laws for us. They're carried over into our law that Christ gave to us. The fact is that God still demands holiness of His people. God is zealous for holiness, and we must be zealous for God's holiness as well, like Phinehas was. Number three. Remember that God is faithful. Remember that God is faithful. The story of chapter 5 comes between chapter, chapters 24 and 26. Pretty obvious, right? But what's happening in chapters 22 through 24? Well, there God was showing that he would follow through on his promise. Right? He's reminding even this pagan uh, mouthpiece of his, Balaam. I'm going to be faithful to my promise. I'm not going to go back on what I've told Israel. I'm still going to bless them. Even if this generation is faithless towards me. Even if they defy me. I'm not going to give up on the nation of Israel. And so I would say chapters 22 to 24 are largely about God's faithfulness. And then chapter 26 is how God is faithful to bring His people into the promised land. And so between these two chapters, 24 and 26, we have our story, chapter 25, a main story of what we've looked at today. God showing His seriousness about His promise, but also His expectation for holiness. That God is gracious to work out His plan in spite of our sin. God is gracious to give us less than our sins deserve. He has every right to, at the first At the first instance of our sin, He has every right to destroy us. But instead, He gently bears with us. He recognizes that we are frail. He doesn't excuse it. But He recognizes it. And He's long-suffering with us, slow to anger, abounding in love, and looking for people who will simply trust Him. So, Zoom out in your mind from this story that we've looked at today and zoom all the way out to Israel's wandering in the wilderness from Egypt to the Promised Land. How many years has it been? Forty years. The beginning of their wandering there at Mount Sinai was marked by treacherous apostasy. They built an idol and worshipped it. The end of their wandering is marched by treacherous apostasy with flagrant immorality and idolatry, worshiping false gods and saying, God, we've seen it all, but we don't care. We'd rather have something else. And while those individual culprits are judged for their sins, God is still faithfully going to accomplish His promise through His people. He hasn't given up on Israel, saying, listen, you younger generation, will you trust me? Will you just put your confidence in me? Will you just accept me at my word? If you will, you will see great blessing. And Joshua's generation would see that great blessing when they entered the promised land. And they, that story for for years and generations to come would be a story of God's mercy and His fulfillment of His promise how much more is God faithful to us? That Despite our temporal lapses of sin, God doesn't give up on us. He's faithful with us all the way till the end. And so we can be confident. That doesn't mean we just ignore our sin, we shouldn't excuse our sin and say, well, God's going to just bring me back. It's fine. No, we need to be serious about what God is serious about. God is serious about holiness. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful that You are God who is truth and who is love. Father, we're thankful that You are holy, as we sang earlier. And praise Your matchless name, for You are worthy.